Welcome to the Arrive Podcast, the U.S. Immigration Law Podcast for Canadians. I am Jeremy Richards, and I'm here with my business partner and fellow immigration attorney, Christine Jerusik. Together, we are Richards and Jerusik Immigration Law, practicing U.S. immigration law from our offices in Buffalo, New York, and Toronto, Ontario. And we help Canadians to work and live in the United States. If you haven't already, please follow and like us on your podcast app. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, Richards and Jerusik Immigration Law. And follow us and like us on, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram uh, for regular updates on U.S. immigration law uh, that we have created just for Canadians. Uh, in addition, on our website, there is a resources tab where you can subscribe to a weekly newsletter where you will receive all our recent updates and posts about U.S. immigration law as well. In today's episode of the Arrive podcast, we're going to do something a little different than what we've done in the past. So we're going to go over some changes and updates with U.S. immigration, uh, things that we're seeing, some trends that we're seeing with case processing. Also, there's been quite a few updates uh, from USCIS that we want to cover uh, for U.S. immigration as well. And we put a thing on our website where individuals that had questions uh, could submit them directly to us and that we would answer them on the podcast. And we received a few of those. So we're going to answer those questions that were submitted, uh, the questions that they had today on the podcast as well. So first things first, we're going to go over some some things that we're seeing, some trends, updates with U.S. immigration. Um, first thing we'll cover is, is some of the delays we're seeing uh, because... We get questions about this all the time with our clients whose cases are currently processing and they have questions about where their case is at, when they're going to get an update, uh, they haven't heard anything, what's going on with my case, what's going on with U.S. immigration right now. Um, or even where we say, uh, you know, give them an estimate at the beginning of their case and now all of a sudden timelines are two times longer than that. Very frustrating. People make plans around when they're going to get their employment authorization, et cetera. And, it, you know, it's hard to plan when you don't know what your timeline is. And it seems like USCIS is just kicking the timeline down the field. Every time they set one and we get close, it's uh, moved another few months. Because it is moving down the field. <laughs> so, um, and that's a good point. When we talk to an individual who's looking for assistance with, with U.S. immigration, we try to give a guess. And that's all it is. A guess as to how long the case is going to take. What we do is we look at cases that we have that are processing, how long they are taking, and then we also look at what the government is saying as far as case, how long cases are taking. And it's an educated guess, but it is a guess. And those processing times fluctuate. And sometimes they can fluctuate by months, and depending on some categories, even years. So when we give a processing time, it's an educated guess. And those can change back and forth. And right now, with USCIS, cases that we saw pre-COVID, such as a petition for, uh, for a U.S. citizen petitioning their spouse, a vanilla case for a spouse, we would see an I-130 petition for spouse with USCIS would take six to eight months. That was standard processing. Sometimes we'd get the occasional case that would come through in a month or two, and you're like, whoa, what happened there? Now, the... Two most recent ones that we've seen approved 
And these are cases that are going to be sent to the consulate for consular processing. Took no less than a year. One of them, I think, was 13 months. Another one was somewhere around 14 or 15 months. So that processing time has almost doubled uh, from what it used to be pre-COVID. And that's case, and we've seen that across not just that case type with USCS, but cases in general with USCS have s- severely slowed down. So almost double the processing time that we're used to. And similarly with the Department of Labor as well. So those employment uh, applications for prevailing wages used to take what four months, then six months, and now prevailing wage used to be months? two months. Yeah, and now a prevailing wage. Uh, yeah, you're looking at nine months to a year for a prevailing wage. Yeah, that's it's very hard for employers to plan around that. So, um, you know, keep this all in mind when you're starting an immigration case. I think I usually tell my clients, you know, you have to be patient with this process. We have no control over these timelines. We'll keep we'll let you know what's going on, but at the same time, you know, a lot of most of the time we can't do anything about it. So that green card sponsor, then that's what we're talking about now. The prevailing wage is attached to a sponsorship by an employer. So if an employer is sponsoring you for a green card in the U.S., and we have a lot of clients in the U.S. Um, on TNs uh, or H-1Bs, and their employer will sponsor them for a green card. And they have to get what's called a prevailing wage through that sponsorship. And that become, comes from the U.S. Department of Labor. And w- essentially what that is, it's... A minimum wage for foreign workers. You can't pay this foreign worker for that profession less than this amount. And you have to get that verification from the Department of Labor before you move forward with this green card process. And that step used to take two to three months just to get that prevailing wage. So it's rather quick. The entire process to get to sponsor a a foreign employee through that process took about a year. Now that same process the whole thing is taking about two years, so it's doubled. Um, and if you're on a TN that's only three years long, well, that doesn't give you much wiggle room to get your green card uh, process completed and to change to a green card before your TN visa expires. So it's very important to understand. And Christine and I were actually just talking about this over lunch. Um and there, where somebody would come on a TN visa, for example, as a management consultant. Well, management consultants, depending on the situation, sometimes can't get an extension. Maybe, or maybe they're moving from a, t, a management consultant position to a managerial position in the company. And they're trying to get that green card before that change occurs. Or they would have to switch to an H-1B uh, if, that, if that fails. Well, if you're only here for three years and your employer wants to sponsor you and you're not able to get an extension on that three-year TN visa, you better start that green card process right away, especially with these processing times with the Department of Labor. So plan ahead, not not only with Department of Labor, but also with USCIS. Cases are taking much longer than they have traditionally. Yeah, and plan ahead means like plan ahead by two years, both in family-based, I would say, and in um, employment-based applications for green cards. Yeah, and if you're consular processing, which we handle a lot of those cases and a lot of Canadians listening right now who are in Canada and filing uh, through the U.S., but then the process through the consulate in Montreal, expect longer wait times. Uh, it's going to take a while. Uh, and again, that's that's outside of everyone's control. That's, that's U.S. Uh, immigration, Department of State, Department of Labor, processing times. And there's actually a lot of lawsuits right now 
against the government to get cases moving along because of these these significant backlogs. Um, other updates. Well, we are coming up on the time where the H-1B lottery will be opening soon. Uh, so that's for H-1B visas and specialty occupations. So if you're in a profession that doesn't qualify for a TN, most of these are managerial level positions, or even a, even a profession that just isn't listed as a USMCA profession, well, you should be getting ready for the H-1B lottery, uh, getting prepared for that. You can't sponsor yourself for that H-1B. Your employer needs to enter the lottery for you, uh, but it's something to be aware of. That is coming up. Uh, usually those are submitted in March. So it's it's coming that time of the year to be aware and prepare. If you are on a TN visa or you're not on a visa at all and you need sponsorship for an H-1B visa, then you should be discussing that with your employer, uh, the H-1B lottery process. Or if you're an employer wanting to move an employee to an H-1B, now's the time to start thinking about that. And then today with us, we also brought uh, one of our associates, uh, Rachel Sparacino, and she's joining us to d- discuss some of these other updates um, that USCIS is, is passing down. One of them is through USCIS Form I-485, which is for adjustment of status. In other words, those who are in the United States, let's say you're being sponsored by your spouse for a green card in the U.S., well, you file for adjustment to change from whatever your current status in the U.S., to a green card. And that form's changing actually significantly um, from what it entails today. And what's the date on the new form? So the new form becomes live December 23rd of this year. So starting December 23rd, all green card applications need to be submitted on that new form. Um, If you submit it before that date, they get rejected. But after that, December 23rd date, which is next week, every green card application that's through adjustment of status has to be done on the new form. The new form brings into light the public charge ground of inadmissibility. So asking... So what's public charge? Asking questions about the intending immigrant's assets, their liabilities, if the intending immigrant is likely to become a public charge, meaning they are likely to become reliant on U.S. government funds through public assistance, be it cash assistance, TANF, um, those types of benefits. So they want to make sure that if you're coming to the U.S., either you have your own financial means to support yourself or your sponsor or or U.S. citizen or U.S. permanent uh, resident relative has the means to sponsor you. Correct. So on this new form, they will now be asking questions about the household size that you will be living in, the liabilities of the household size, their like, assets. Do you have any debt? Do you have any debt? Exactly. Your highest level of education. What certificates, what degrees do you have? What licenses do you have? And then if you have ever received public benefits in the past or are you currently on public benefits? They're asking those questions. If you are, then you have to... Submit, I'm trying to think of the word, sorry. (laughs) No, you don't need evidence for it. If you are on public benefits now or if you have been in the past, you have to provide the organization who supplied you with public benefits, if it was state, local, or federal benefits, and then what type of benefits you received. 
So, so this goes back to what you said, the public, the public charge issue. They want to make sure if you're immigrating to the U.S. or you're sponsoring somebody to come, that there's enough financial support coming from you and your family members, and you're not going to end up relying on the government. So that's a big change. They, they did a similar change uh, a little while ago, and they, they pulled it back. Um, and it didn't go away. Uh, it, it's rearing its ugly head again. Um, so that is something you need to be aware of if you're being sponsored or will be sponsored to come to the United States through green card process. Uh, they are going to be looking into your financial details uh, a little bit more closely than they have in the past. And it's really not something you can prepare for because this change goes next week. So um, it's something that takes effect rather quickly with short notice. Uh, the other changes that we're seeing coming down from USCIS are, are with the naturalization process. In other words, when somebody is here in the United States, they're a permanent resident or a green card holder, and they want to become a U.S. citizen. That's referred to as the naturalization process. Um, updates to that process are they're doing some testing, right? Yes. So they are doing pilot testing on the English-speaking portion of the test. So USCIS announced that there will be no changes to the reading or writing portion of your English test. However, they are making some adjust adjustments to the English-speaking portion, they have yet to say what those adjustments look like, but those will be coming soon. Yeah, so expect changes with, if you want to, if you will be uh, or plan on applying for U.S. citizenship in the future, uh, expect changes to that testing requirement. So if you're in a position that you can apply now and you want to avoid uh, these new changes that we don't know what they will be yet, um, but typically when a change is implemented, it's, it's not going to make it easier. Let's just put it that way. It's just going to add another hurdle for people. So if you want to avoid that and you're in a position to apply for naturalization, then now's the time before those changes go into effect. Um, another positive change for naturalization applicants is if you are applying for citizenship, they are giving an automatic extension to those green cards as long as it's filed in a timely manner. In other words, you have to file before your, your green card expires. They will give an automatic two-year extension to your green card that will allow you to work, travel, do whatever you need while you're waiting for your naturalization interview uh, and, and to gain U.S. citizenship. So that's a welcome change for those individuals. Uh, they don't have to apply for an extension of those green cards. Uh, simply file for naturalization and you'll receive an automatic extension. Uh, also, interview waivers. And I don't know if we talked about this in the past or not, but interview, interview waivers um, are being implemented by USCIS. And Christine, we've had a few cases recently like this where in the past, if you, if you filed a case and it was based on marriage, the interview was mandatory. You had to have an, you had to have an interview. Um, in other words, you had to go before USCIS, uh, where they vet you and they ask you questions and review your evidence and make sure that your marriage is what they call bona fide or real. Now they're going to take factors into account based on what's submitted as far as evidence, how long you're you've been married, do you have children, factors such as that. And if there's sufficient evidence in the filing that USCIS thinks, hey, They've submitted enough. We think this is real. They can waive that interview altogether and just issue you the green card. And now, 
It's important to understand this is for adjustment cases. In other words, you're already in the United States. This does not apply to consular cases. Right. And we had seen before where they would routinely waive the interview requirement for, um, you know, people po sponsoring parents in the United States. Employment. Um, yeah, employment-based adjustments, and, and that was very normal, And but we had rarely seen it happen, in, if ever, in a spousal case, um, but that's becoming more routine now, too, which is good news. Yeah, we, I think recently, within the last couple of weeks, we got three of them waived. Yeah, I've had over the last few months about the same amount, so... It's Welcome surprise for the client, right? They think they yes. have to go to this interview and they're going to go through all this, you know, stress of going down to USCIS and have their marriage questioned. And now there's green card shows up in the mail. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense with the allocation of resources. If they don't have enough people to conduct these interviews in a timely manner, just waive the ones that don't aren't problematic, you know, that you don't, you're not going to have any questions for them anyway. So um, why not just get, get it over and approve it without an interview? Yeah, and these these um, changes are meant to help with these caseload issues that we referred to earlier. If they're not doing these interviews all the time, they can spend more time adjudicating cases. Um, if uh, if they're doing automatic extensions of green cards, well, then that reduces the amount of uh, green card extension applications people are filing when they file for adjustment. So these all, all these little changes are meant to help alleviate caseload and also make it more convenient. They're, they're common sense changes most of the time too. Absolutely. And I just think it speaks to, you know, the importance of having someone represent you with these types of cases, because if now you, you can see that if you file with everything you need, you may even get the extra benefit of skipping a step in the process. And that just speeds things along. So, um, you know, Get a lawyer if you can and, and try to right. make your process move as quickly as possible considering the timelines you're up against anyway. Yep. And the other thing too is when you file these cases when you're in the U.S., you, you're you supposed to file a medical examination along with oh, it. Oh, yeah, medical. Um, and traditionally we said don't worry about your medical, just bring it to your interview because the inter interview is mandatory, right? So right. you just show up to the interview with your medical. Well, now what they're saying is there's a chance that we're going to waive your interview if you submit your medical along with your application from the beginning, that makes it easier for them. And your case is going to process faster because they don't have to request it later. And the medicals aren't expiring right now. We have that nice COVID movement too. Yep. So um, even if you submit it with your initial application, you may see, you know, you may save yourself some time because you don't have to get an RFE for the medical. And the and green card will just show up in the mail. Yeah, the green card would just show up in the mail. Exactly. Yeah. So those are welcome changes. Um, and then... You know, in general, what we're seeing right now is a slower process. Yeah. So and just there's one more that. change I'd like to mention, and this isn't one as recent as these last few that we've been talking about. It probably happened maybe, what, six to eight months ago, but they separated the um, issuance of employment authorization and travel oh, yeah. authorization for adjustment applicants. Um, they used to issue it on one card, and it would come in, I'd say, you know, six to eight months after you file. Um, maybe 10 months during COVID, um, but you would get that employment and travel at the same time. And I think we have mentioned this before. It was a joint podcast. card. It joint was a joint card, travel yeah. authorization work authorization. And so now what they're doing, I think they wanted to get people back to work a little more quickly. Um, they, they saw there was a shortage of labor in the United States. So they're issuing the employment authorization, but not the travel authorization. So, um, you know, it's great because now our new in, intending immigrants here in the United States can get to work, but they still can't leave the country. So be careful if you get one of these cards in the mail, make sure you check it and, and see if it's for both before you go anywhere. 
Um, in most cases, it will not be. It will be just for employment authorization. Yeah, so that's a welcome change for those people that want to work in the U.S. Uh, because they don't have to wait. And we're seeing, what, two to three months for those to process. So that's actually sped up. Well, that did, but it slowed down again. Slowed now it's closer, to, it's closer to six months. So people that I had retained about, you know, four months ago are saying, hey, where's my employment authorization? I say, well, yeah, they kicked the goal line again. <laughs> so you are waiting another couple months now. But so four to six months. Yeah, I would say that's a better And estimate. then the travel authorization, in most cases, we... You don't even see people receive that. I just got one the other day and it took 10 months. 10 months. Yes. So we'll start seeing more and more of them though, because we weren't seeing them because cases would be approved in the eight to 12 month range, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Therefore they didn't need to issue that travel authorization. Well now, since cases are taking over the 12 month range, well, now they're going to, we're going to start seeing more and more travel authorizations issued because cases are taking longer to process. And that allows those individuals to travel while they continue to, to yep. sit in the United States and wait. Particularly important for our Canadian clients because we know you all want to get back to Canada as soon as you can to visit your families. <laughs> Feet are on fire. Yeah. <laughs> and we're getting a lot of those questions now because we've gone through, you know, Thanksgiving, but now Christmas Holidays, and the New Year. Yeah. People want to be with family, so it's understandable. Um, but the, the sad news is, you know, people that are stuck in the process right now, if you're in the U.S. adjusting and you haven't received that yet, well, you're going to be sitting a little bit longer than you expected uh, because of these delays. So the other thing we wanted to do today in this podcast is, like I mentioned earlier, is address some questions that we specific questions we received by email uh, that people want to address in the podcast. Um, and there were good, some good questions. Uh, one of the questions that we received is we have a I guess a, a page on our website that covers the answer to this question, but th those answers are in general, right? We can't get into specific details and, and um, individuals often have unique circumstances that aren't addressed with the general question. Uh, and one of the questions, and we have this on our website because it is such a common question, is how long can I stay in the United States as a Canadian visitor? That's the general question. But the individual that submitted this question said that they, they understand that part of the question, but they, they, have, they want to go into a little bit more depth on what does that mean and what can I do while I'm in the United States as a Canadian visitor. And this, the specific question is, Canadian visitors cannot accept employment or work in the USA. I am looking to seek clarification on this as I am visiting my girlfriend for one to two months multiple times a year. I do have a permanent employment in Canada that allows me to work remotely anywhere. I am wondering if it's legally okay for me to continue my work at this company completely remote while I am visiting my girlfriend in the United States. So this question is one I've answered dozens of times over the years. Mm -hmm. Common question. So as a Canadian visitor, so just making this, simplifying this question, as a Canadian visitor, can you work for your Canadian employer while you're here visiting the United States? That's what he wants to know. So the answer to that is, it's, it's a gray area, but technically, yes, you can. If you're a visitor coming to the United States to go to Florida on the beach or visit your girlfriend for a month, you have no status other than visitor status in the United States, and you have a laptop, you're gonna be working remotely for your Canadian employer, you're probably gonna be okay. You're probably not crossing any lines as far as um, employment authorization requirements. 
Now, you know, where it gets difficult is what if your Canadian employer has a U.S. office? That's a different story. Right. And plenty of Canadian employers have U.S. branches, U.S. And it, offices. And it also depends on the situation, right? So this individual, he's saying, yeah, I'm just coming to visit my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to be there for a little bit and I'm going to work remotely for my Canadian employer. Well, in most cases, that's fine. Why? Well, your purpose isn't to come to the United States to work. Your purpose is to come to the United States as a visitor and you're performing incidental work remotely while in the United States. That's okay. You can answer work emails. You can do stuff like that while you're vacationing in the United States. But if you are here working full time in the U.S. remotely, that's still not allowed. You, you're not allowed to be here remotely, even working for a foreign employer on a on a full time basis. Um, there are situations where you come come as a business visitor, and there's this. It's actually called you 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 were issued a business visitor visa, where you are being paid solely by a foreign employer. You're not abandoning your foreign employment. You're not servicing U.S. clients. Everything, all the work product and everything is done for the foreign clients or entity, and that would fall under a business visitor. So you have to be careful with what you're doing. But the standard trip to the U.S. as a visitor, you're bringing your laptop or your phone, you're just answering incidental emails while you're on vacation, that's fine. Uh, but when it becomes employment in the U.S., then that's where you're going to run into problems, especially what you just said, Christine. If they have a U.S. entity and a Canadian entity, if a border officer finds that out and you're coming to the work in the U.S., even short-term like that, they're going most often they're going to tell you no. If they don't tell you no, they'll say, they'll give you a harsh warning and say, hey, you can do this this one time, but if you're going to come back again, you need to have a visa to work for that employer. Next question. Let's see here. So, T and a green card. So, this individual says they that they are citizens. So, when you're going from a T and visa to a green card, people often have a question about intent. And that's one of the biggest issues. Because a TN visa carries non-immigrant intent. In other words, if you're in the U.S. on a TN... You're not supposed to come here to seek to get a green card and stay permanently. Well, if you are doing that process, it is possible if you take into consideration timing issues. Um, You can go from a TN visa to a green card, and we've discussed that in the past. It's the same process as going from an H-1B to a green card. Um, Same exact process, and it goes back to what we talked about earlier with those perm delays. Well, that's the process you use to go from a TN visa to a green card. Well, this individual has a a more specific question about that process. This individual says, I'm an Indian-born Canadian citizen. Can I get a TN visa to green card, or does it depend on priority date? Is it a complicated process? Well, yes, it does become complicated when you were not born in Canada. And the priority date does matter. And so a priority date comes from the U.S. government issuing only a certain number of green cards for individuals born uh, in certain countries in certain employment classifications. So it can get really complicated depending on what country you're, you're from. And they don't go off of citizenship. And that's what's in, and that this individual understands that. They go off of country of birth. 
So you could be a Canadian citizen now, but if you were born in India, or a Canadian-born individual going from TNV to the green card, it, it could be that two-year process we just talked about. Well, if you were born in India, your process may take 10 years, depending on what that priority date is, depending on how many people are in front of you in line. And that's the easiest way to explain it, is every one of these green card categories has people in line in front of you. The U.S. government only issues so many green cards a year for individuals from from these countries as well as these categories. So there's a backlog and there is a wait time. So if you are an Indian born Canadian citizen and you wanna go from TN to green card, you can do it, but it does take proper planning. You need to time it out precisely for when you're renewing your TNs, when you're submitting your uh, final green card application, you need to take into account when you can travel, when you can't travel, when all of these applications go into play. Yes, it can be done. And you can continue to renew and extend a TN if you have this green card process going on in the background. Uh, when you start certain steps, however, you're not going to be able to extend your TN anymore and you're not going to be able to travel. So you need to pay careful attention to this process and do it correctly. Otherwise, the process is exactly the same as an individual going from an H-1B visa to a green card. TN visa to green card, same exact process. The added factor is what was mentioned. Immigrant intent. Well, country of birth. Timing. And the timing delay. Mm -hmm. You have the same timing delay with H-1B, right? But H-1B has immigrant intent, like you Mm -hmm. just said, where TN has non-immigrant intent. So H-1B traditionally has a six-year max. But if if you've had parts of these processes is approved with the Department of Labor or with USCIS, you can actually extend that H-1B beyond six years, and then your country of birth becomes obsolete, doesn't matter, U.S. governments recognize that, and you can keep extending while you wait for your green card. Well, TN does not have that same exception. So you have to, you have to apply your own strategy to take advantage of that. Why? Because a TN visa can be extended indefinitely. It doesn't have the six-year limit. But you, you have to play with that non-immigrant intent issue instead. So there's a, there's a game you have to play there with when you file what and paying attention to priority dates as, as well as processing times to make sure you play that right. Um, so I guess the short answer to the question is yes, it can be done, even for Canadians uh, that were born in India. And yes, it is complicated. Uh, so you <laughs> need to make sure you do it correctly. Thank you for joining us today as we address these these topics in the Arrive podcast. Uh, thank you, Rachel, for joining us and putting you on the spot. She didn't give much advance notice. I think we said, hey, Rachel, we're doing a podcast today. You want to join us? <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah, it was good to have you. And we'll hopefully we'll have you on more in the future um, as we ha- have these discussions. Uh, and we hope to follow a similar format going forward, too, where we have... Uh, a discussion about what's really going on with immigration. Um, Hopefully those that listened have some immigration questions. We like them. Uh, If you have a question that you want answered on the Arrive podcast, let us know. Shoot us an email. Say, hey, I'm listening. Uh, Can you answer this question for me? Uh, We'd love to answer your your real-life questions on the podcast and give you those answers that you're looking for. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Uh, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
uh, and join us next time. Thank you and have a great day.